Hi, I'm Steve, and I'm an engineer. And I'm Mac, a history teacher. Welcome to Civics on the Rocks, the once-a-month podcast out of Texas. In this podcast, we, along with our producer Anne, Hello. Talk about politics, history, and science. And science fiction. We're also drinking. Yes, lots of drinking and bad jokes. Not distasteful, just poor quality. Okay, let's get started. The question of the day, are your tax dollars working for you? Steve, would you like to start? Yes, I would like to start, and I will answer that question by saying yes. Would you like to elaborate? Sure. You're going to have to sit down for a second. So, yes, your tax dollars work. Why? How do your tax dollars work? Well, the fact that you can go into any establishment and pay with currency that you can expect to be accepted by that establishment that you can order something and actually have some confidence somebody will deliver it, and if they don't, you have recourse. That when you go driving on the streets, everybody's going to drive on the same side of the road. And there are streets. And that there are streets. Uh, Near and dear to my heart, the fact that people aren't dying from cholera and typhoid all the time because of dirty water, because we clean water and pump it to people's houses so they can drink safe water and flush their toilets. Um, Oh, also, not get invaded by foreign countries. That's also a bonus. I like that that my tax dollars do. Well, Well, yeah, there have been some... They try. There's been some moments in history We get invaded less frequently by foreign countries. Um, I'll allow that. Is what it would have happened more if, you know, judges, court systems that actually prosecute criminals and can enforce Uh, laws. That's that's a gray area, man. They do. I'm not saying they do a great job. They do prosecute people. They do prosecute they people. They do. They do. They do other things. Um, yeah. I mean, all of these areas have room for improvement, don't get me wrong, but the alternative of simply not having them and living where we all get beaten up by whoever is the larger club, pass. So, yeah, your tax dollars, I think, work pretty okay. Could be better, but better than not. Well, I'm going to say, as a public school teacher, you know, sure, there are things that could be improved upon, but generally it's better to have an educated populace than not. And, yes. you know, I know there's there's the, the, the theory, the belief out there that, oh, if we didn't have, you know, public education, the, the market would take care of it. Like everybody would still get educated, but it'd be at a better price. And it's like, that's not going to, it wasn't happening, which is, which is why the state said, let's have public education. And generally, the resistance to public education in the past was not so much because, oh, you know, market forces. It was because we don't want our kids going with to school with kids that look like that. So it's, I think in general, public education, and, and everybody says, you know, failed, you know, the failed public education system. Well, no. You know, we still produce, you know, doctors, lawyers, and rocket scientists, and a lot of people in meaningful careers um, that contribute in a positive way to themselves, their families, and their societies, and that you would not necessarily have if you just sort of left it up to market forces. So, Absolutely. And, you know, it's good to have people that can contribute to society because they've been educated. It's good to have people that can participate in their government, in a democratic government, because they're educated on how things work and topics. It's good that they, you know, are educated because they understand maybe, you know, going after rich people with torches and pitchforks is a bad idea, and there's other ways to address their grievances. Those are all good reasons for public education. So, yeah, I don't, never understood that, especially in not just public education, other areas of government, where people who like small government get in charge of government and then cut the funding and then say, see, government doesn't work. We should get rid of it. it. Yeah, I'm like, well, if you broke it first... That's not it not working. That's you sucking at governing. That you broke it. Yeah. So I don't I don't understand that. Over the course of American history, we have had plenty of politicians that are very good at breaking things in government. Yes. And government is not the solution to all problems. I don't mean to imply that. It it there's things it can do. Um, but I'm often amused when we had a few years ago the uh, the debate over our healthcare. You know, oh, I don't want a government bureaucrat in charge of my health care. Well, do you want a corporate bureaucrat in charge of your health care? I mean, at least the government one is sort of accountable to you because you can vote for their bosses, whereas the the corporate one is not. 
Yeah, if you if you think so, government-run health insurance are going to have death panels, let me let you in on something: that the insurance companies basically definitely have death panels. I mean that that's and now you know you listen to or read what what doctors have to say and hospitals have to say about how the insurance companies are just denying everything now as a matter of course, and forcing doctors to try to appeal it and deciding you know then okay well you know we'll maybe fund this because they're just they're just denying everything. Yeah, I've had I've had a medication that I've been on that I've been on for two years, and then all of a sudden, you know, my health insurance decided to sort of reject it because they they sort of made something up. They said, "Well, you hadn't tried these other medications first, but by the way, and in the same letter, but by the way, we're not saying we would approve those medications either." <laughs> okay, thank you. I got the punchline. How about the idea that not everybody pays taxes to the same? amount as others jeff bezos yeah well i was gonna say but as and people in poverty also don't really pay enough taxes yeah. if you open need, that door they need to pay more because me as a billionaire i'm you know i'm driving <laughs> this economy it's like oh yeah because before we had billionaires yeah you know, we, no we couldn't we couldn't get anything done yeah there's a very there's a very fair question about tax burden and and the fact that that well, cutting to the chase, that really rich people can pay lobbyists to make sure they don't pay taxes somehow, miraculously, because that makes sense. Even though all the folk in the middle pay taxes, you know, sure, I'd rather not pay because we'd all rather not pay. But then again, I like civilization, so I'm okay paying taxes at the end of the day. I'm not actually going to not pay. Yeah. So that's fine. You know, and yeah, and people who, as I, you know, obnoxiously put it at the lower end of the, of the pay scale don't really pay much in taxes well yeah because they can't because they're trying to make a living no, that's fine yeah they're not going to have the so, same level of money yeah so which is throws an even starker relief why Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk doesn't pay taxes it's like you're fine you can afford it you can afford more so I don't even there's no there's no real argument for them to pay less taxes somebody did the math on Jeff Bezos, and I mean, you could do it with him or, or Elon Musk or whoever, but it's like from the time of Christ <laughs> through today, in order to make as much money as Jeff Bezos has now, and if you worked 40 hour weeks, you know, 50 weeks out of the, you know, two weeks vacation or whatever, you, you would have to be making something, it was some ridiculous, and like $75,000 an hour for 2,000 years to have as much money as he does. Now I'm probably got the math wrong, and we can but, yeah. figure out the math later. But I mean, it was it was something like that. And when you put it in that perspective, it's like, but, yeah, it's like a diminished. Well, it's a, like a marginal utility thing. It's like the, you know what that extra billion really doesn't get you much more than you, you already like two hundred fifty billion. Yeah, what's another billion? I, that's not. It's just insane. It's obscene. I guess when you look at yourself as a one quarter trillionaire, maybe you have an inferiority complex. What was it, I think, Buffett, who once commented about how actually he wanted to kind of see, the, on a capital gain, see the capital gains fixed. Because he's like, why am I pay, paying a lower tax rate than my secretary? Yeah. You know? He's like, yeah, no, that's dumb. You're right. There's not, you know, you can make all the arguments you want about, oh, we need to encourage investment and blah, 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 blah. Well, yeah, but you can still pay an extra 5 or 10% in taxes. That's fine. That's not going to break you from investing in something. Yeah. So... How do you feel about the allocation of taxes? Do you feel like, let's say, education could use a little bit more? Yeah, and let's say, <laughs> oh, I don't know, the military could use a little bit less? Well, okay, yes. I mean, I think education can use a little bit more, especially when your state's sitting on a multi-billion dollar surplus. But the priority is, is issuing vouchers for anybody that wants to take their kid out of public school or maybe doesn't even have their kid currently in public school but we're just you want it we're going to give you a check for eight thousand or whatever they finally decide upon and you can use that to defray the cost of tuition in a private school and it basically means that the people who are already sending their kids to private school are not going to get like an eight thousand dollar break on their tuition and but you know that money depending upon how the bill turns out in the texas legislature that money could be coming basically out of the, the money that would be going to public education. And then our governor said something today along the lines of, it, to the legislature, if you pass the vouchers, then I'll add onto the, the agenda for the legislative, for the special session, I'll, I'll add full funding for public education. Um, sort of. I heard it slightly differently, which was, 
I called the session to do exactly one thing, the voucher system that I wanted. And if you pass what I want, then I will allow you to vote on other things because that's yeah. how separation of powers works, more or less. Apparently, the governor dictates what the legislature works on. Yeah. Well, for special sessions. Yeah. This, for those of you not familiar, so each of the 50 states has their own constitution and their own government. There's many similarities. But for Texas, there's some important differences. We're still operating under the Constitution of 1876 with amendments, and there's been something like 200 and something amendments. The Texas Constitution is like a book. Um, and it was written by people who did not... Everything's bigger in Texas. Yeah, that is true. <laughs> uh, it's, it was written by people who did not trust government, in part because it was... The, the 1876, it was the people who were sort of reclaiming the legislature from the people who were running it during Reconstruction. So they didn't trust government. They also didn't trust governors. The ex-Confederates. And so yeah, up until 1976, um, a term for a Texas governor was just two years. And, and then 76, it got, I think it was 76, um, it got changed to four years. But the Texas Constitution said the legislature will meet once every two years. Okay, that's not twice a year, kids. Once every two years, odd-numbered years in the spring. And the, the term of the legislature has a hard deadline. You know, anything that's on the table at midnight on that day is, is done. That's it. But the governor can call special sessions. It's supposed to be for emergencies, but there isn't really a limit to the number of special sessions a governor can call. Or a definition of emergency. Or Well, yeah, let's, let's talk about that sometime. But... Um, but the legislature, when there's a special session, they can only deal with the topics that the governor listed for the special session. So it's like, okay. Now, the other thing that's worth saying, since we're talking about the governor, is Texas governor does not necessarily have as many powers as, as you might think. Because we more or less have a plural executive. The lieutenant governor is elected separately. The attorney general is elected separately, even if he's a crook. Um, the railroad commissioner is elected separately. The agriculture commissioner and so on. Sorry, this okay. is, well, I get to have a tangent for once. Sure. Do other states have railroad commissioners, or is this a weird-ass Texas thing? Do you it, mean railroad commissioners that commission the railroads, or railroad commissioners that run only gas? That, yeah, that's, see, because, that's the thing. Again, those of you out of state may not be familiar that in Texas, the railroad commissioner's Does sole gas. responsibility is managing oil and gas. Yeah, and in fact, I want to say like most of the railroad stuff over time like went to somebody else. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, that's so th there was a time once upon a time that I taught at night at a community college and I would teach, um, government, national government, but I'd also teach Texas government. And when I would tell students, so you could make an argument that the most powerful elected position in Texas was the Lieutenant governor. Second was the railroad commissioner and third was the governor. Cause basically if a governor has any power, it is purely like his ability to politically persuade it's, it's his, his politicking. The lieutenant governor doesn't simply preside over the Senate. The lieutenant governor basically decides what the Senate is going to hear. And so that has a huge influence on what the legislature does. And then, yeah, as Steve was saying, the railroad commissioner basically, long story short, set prices for oil and gas. And there was a period of time uh, up until, oh, I want to say the 1960s or so, like one, once the infrastructure for oil in the Middle East got going and there was a lot more oil coming out of the Middle East post-World War II, before that happened, the railroad commissioner in Texas more or less set the world price of oil. Um, so West Texas Intermediate is one of the major benchmarks. Yeah. And now, since, oh, probably about 10 years ago now, see, Texas reached peak oil in the early 70s. Uh, and so, you know, after the early 70s, we were still producing oil, but it was a little less every year. But once we had fracking, we had trough oil, <laughs> and we, we started going back up. And now Texas produces about as many barrels a day as Kuwait does. Which is why, as I recall, not long ago, the U.S. became a net oil exporter, if I'm not mistaken. Yep, I believe that is correct. So You want to take bets on how long before we have earthquakes in Texas? We already, well, we already have earthquakes. Have earthquakes. <laughs> Especially up in, well, near the, there's some actually, there's some fracking up in, in North Texas, because I remember mm -hmm. the, like, earthquakes in the Dallas area, and it's like, you know, they already have to face, like, F5 tornadoes every so often. They don't really need earthquakes added to that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But then, okay, and actually, 
tax dollars at work. A lot of the, the fracking in Texas happens in South Texas, down in the Catula area and that kind of thing. And so there's been a lot of, you know, truck traffic and things like that. And the, the, <laughs> but there was this conversation. Yeah. yeah. So a few legislative sessions ago, uh, the budget for TxDOT got, Texas Department of Transportation got either, or either cut or not as much money as they thought. And so road maintenance is one of the things they have to look at. And they, TxDOT made the decision that there were quite a few roads that had been paved roads for for a while that they had to return to being dirt roads gravel because yeah yeah. well yeah dirt roads in texas is basically large chunks of rocks um that they um because they weren't going to be able to do the maintenance on actual paved roads and a lot of those roads are in the south texas area all of those roads yeah or where the oil and gas trucks are going and and to give you the other side of this the I wasn't aware of the budget aspect, but the, even if the budget wasn't a problem, these were all basically what what in Texas are. It's unique to Texas, as I understand it. It's called farm to market, ranch to market roads. FM. Um, yeah. And, yeah. Where in the, the 30s, 40s, 50s, Texas decided all the farmers and ranchers needed a more reliable transportation system, and they paved a amazing number of roads, opened up rural areas to, to traffic and development, and farmers got their crops new. It was it was a really really neat thing, and one reason why Texas has a pretty broad road system. And helps the Texas economy. Yeah. But these roads, you know, the farmers drove on, and then occasionally a harvest would come in, and that was the traffic. So the maintenance on these roads was not very high. You run a fracking site, you have at some points 18 wheelers running in and out of that site on like 30-minute intervals for days, 24 hours a day. The, the amount of wear on the roads was way beyond they were ever designed for or the maintenance was ever able to cope with. So they could not reasonably pave these and keep up. And they basically threw up their hands and said, screw it. As long as you're running these trucks, this is a gravel road. Maybe when you're done, we'll come back and pave it. Yeah. And budget just exacerbates that. Although let's also talk about like when TxDOT has money, what do they do with it? Oh, let's make it. Let's make this highway 12 lanes wide. You know, there's 18 lanes wide. Talk about the, uh, I forget the number, but let's pave Austin. The toll road that was intended to pass San Antonio and Austin, and it would cleverly get all of the big trucks off of the main interstates, and they'd all be on this toll road around Austin. Around anywhere, because it was built in a bad spot, and why would truckers pay an extra eight bucks to drive on a road that was way out of their way when they could drive on the interstates? So no one drives on the toll road, hardly. Um, I do. Every time I go north of Austin, because, oh my God, it's so much nicer than driving through downtown Austin. Fair. And you can drive 90, so... That's also a plus. It's fun, but it does not, yeah, the current use does not reflect what they proposed it was going to be used for or the expense related yeah, to it. No. And, and it's, so I, I get toll roads. I, you know, I, under, I understand toll roads. You know, Houston has Sam Houston Tollway. And, I understand toll roads. They're but, still an abomination. Yeah, sure. I, I don't, it, it's like, I know there's people that would argue that like any taxes are extortion or whatever, but toll roads just really seem like extortion because... We all benefit from, like, look, I don't, you can have a highway going through Loving County, Texas, which is, which is on the border of New Mexico, has the smallest population of any Texas county, it's like 89, okay? But, but the fact that there's stuff that, if you've got a paved road, can come in and out of there, I mean, that benefits the Texas economy. Maybe somewhere down the line it benefits me, but if the Texas economy is benefited, it's going to benefit all of us. Yeah, as you point out. You can look at a road as an economic vehicle, regardless of where it is. Even if it's not in my county, even if I'm never going to drive on that road, it still enables economic progress, commerce, and, and services to reach places and people that, that need it and that are citizens, fellow citizens and so forth. So, I mean, there's an economic argument for any piece of road almost. But there's also kind of a moral argument there of, oh, do we just not build roads out to this place because there's not enough voters there? Right. No. All of the citizens should have some level of service, and, and, and not just service, but access to the rest of the world and the rest of the nation, country, whatever. And so you have roads so they can connect to everybody. They can participate in the society. And, and if you look at people in rural areas, and, and Texas, you know, the developers in Texas notwithstanding, we still have a lot of rural areas and they, I mean, they contribute to the Texas economy and they don't, and you know, and, and so in vouchers, vouchers are not going to help people in rural areas because there are no private schools out there. You know, they're, they're, 
their public school that many of them have to, like the bus travels 20 miles to get to, you know, that's what they got. And, you know, the idea, oh, well, they could have vouchers. Well, what are they going to do with that? Should the budget of the military be less? I think that's interesting. Uh, let me pose a, a superficially unrelated question. Um, is it okay for the U.S. government to run a deficit on an annual basis? Shouldn't the government's budget be balanced just like a household? No. No. Yeah, because it's not the same thing. Yep, it's not. It's completely categorically different. You know, when when you're a standard currency, when you can print your own money, the, the budget rules are not the same. I'm going to argue the same for the military. The U.S. does not have a military to protect its borders. That's not why we spend, what, more than the top... 25 other militaries combined and like approaching a trillion dollar budget yeah it's, not, it's a little ridiculous yeah, yeah. Um, first of all it's a public works program it's a jobs program um, second of all we do it to maintain global peace because we found we like it when there's not a lot of wars going on there's, there's and that was working on, for a while it was and um, and then yeah but I mean I, 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 I the US is a global hegemony it's what we are it's what we've been for 60-odd, 70-odd years now. Yeah, about 10 years. About 10 years. Um, and one of the ways we stayed in that role is because of ridiculous military size. But should we be in that role? I mean, I know that that's what we are. We are. And I'm not... And I get that yeah. you're saying if we want to stay that way, we need to perpetuate this. True. Do we want to perpetuate this? Is this what we want to be about? Is that how we want America to be seen by the rest of the world? Because it is. It is. Well, and I think that that's kind of the question. And I mean, my, my thought is coming out of World War II, that was the preferable option. I don't think there's any problem. Now, we stayed in that role. The question is, does that still make sense? And putting aside the historical argument, I mean, I, I don't think it's healthy for a world to have one overpowering hegemonic power for any long period. But I think you can't just walk away from that and things stay stable. I think there's a transition that needs to be figured out. Well, and was there even anything close to a transition that happened? Then no. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would, because, so... Franklin Roosevelt, his State of the Union address, January 1944, which, by the way, he delivered on radio because he had a flu at the time. Uh, it was known as the Second Bill of Rights speech. Kids, get your flu shot. Yeah, um, which they didn't have back then. But, uh, hey, you know, tax dollars at work. Um, but so that it's known as the Second Bill of Rights speech where he, where he proposes that. But earlier in the speech, he talks about not wanting to go back to you know, the, the world, like what happened after the first world war, where we were isolationist, because if we want to do the fortress America thing, we can do that. Cause right now we have, you know, what you would call garrisons all over the world. We have bases all over the world in, in dozens like of countries. Pointillist empire. And we, and again, that's another reference to how to hide an empire, oh, yeah. which totally. is a really good book. Cause I've been reading it too. It's, it's really good. But, um, no, you, you, you need to be engaged. And that's important. And the reality is part of the way that we needed to be engaged, especially post-World War II, with, I'm going to go ahead and say, the Soviet menace, um, part of that's going to be with our military. Now, okay, I don't want to get into the whole, you know, thing. But part of it, realistically, was going to be with our military. And, you know, how long should that continue? Should we have tried to, you know, foster some kind of transition to a more peaceful world where we don't even necessarily call it a multipolar world because nobody's looking at their neighbor and saying, man, I would like to kill all those people and take their land. But I mean, how, I mean, it's a legit question. How do you Mm. do it? Do I believe that, you know, that kind of future is possible? I'm going to say yes. And, and I don't care how naive that makes me sound, but at the same time, was that, was that happening? And, And the answer is no. So if, if we, if we want to, and I, I could even go I could crawl back into our shell and you know yeah. and, and make Fortress America. Is that going to make the world safer for us in the long run? Sooner or later, aren't there things yeah. that are going to happen that are going to show up on our doorstep? Well, to be that person, 
we got a lot of crap wrong inside of this country. Oh, yeah. That and our tax that we dollars could be going towards. Mm -hmm. True. And it's like, I don't care if somebody from Russia shoots me if I'm worried about somebody shooting me in my movie theater. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, and or the police shooting innocent people. Or people dying of hunger on the street that I mm -hmm. drive down that I paid for with taxes. And homeless. And, you know, it's like, mm -hmm. maybe let's not build another aircraft carrier because we've got 62 already. Actually, I don't know how many do we have. Uh, we have 10. Okay. There's, there's, there's some building, but the, and there's always one undergoing nuclear refueling. So basically 10 at any given time. 10 operational. So, operational. And, and just for, for comparison for those out there who don't keep track of aircraft carriers, the country with the next most aircraft carriers has two. So maybe we don't need another one. Maybe let's not build the next one. Let's, I don't know, build some houses for people who can't afford housing. I'm 100% behind the I am houses. a hippie. No, I'm 100% behind the, I, I think it's abhorrent that the U.S. has people who don't have housing or food, period. It's That's ridiculous. I, I will say, I, I think we're a big enough country that we can have a, an, a, a substantial military and also house all of our people. But that's what I'm saying, is we have the substantial military. Yes. But and that's it's, why are we continuously expanding it? So, well, let, let me say something about our tax dollars not at work in the military because in the last twenty years there have been some weapons systems programs that were ill conceived, and if anybody out there is saying, "Oh, really? Are you an expert on this?" and it's like, "No, you, I mean you can read for yourself." But let's talk about the F thirty five, and and I'm I'm sure it's a very nice fighter plane, but there. Are, have been a number of, of articles detailing how it was like way over budget. It was not doing what was advertised. And, and you can, the counter argument is many new technologies were going into this aircraft. And so there were things that had to be ironed out. And I get that. Look at the time frame that it took from, you know, the, the initial designs of the X-35 to get to something that is deployable, you know, that where we actually now have fighter squadrons for it. And the thing is, th this is an example of how, um, you know, we've already sunk enough money into this. And even though there's voices that are saying, we just need to cut the cord. We need to, like some of the technologies we've developed, go back with, with the F-15, the F-18, the F-16, apply some of those new technologies to them, which, which they've done. And we are going to have some new build F-15s. And we have, you know, you know the F-18E the F e and F. Um, where some of these, you know, the AESA radars in them and, and that sort of thing, and, and just go with that, which, which would be more economical, and we can produce more of them. They're not going to cost as much, and they will still be better than anything out there, um, rather than, hey, let's have something that's like two generations ahead of realistically what, you know, the other countries can field. There, there's issues with, with tax dollars not at work in the government, in the Pentagon, Pentagon specifically, with, with major weapons programs. There have always been examples of that on and off in history, frankly, mm -hmm. because people aren't that clever, and they screw up a lot. Mm -hmm. And very often you come up with plans that don't actually work out. Um, yeah, and I, I think I think it would be clever, you know, better use of tax dollars to move emphasis away from big, expensive, brand-new weapons programs to you know more substantial, proven things. That could well, be better used, but again, I, I don't see. In fact, I I don't see why you know there's there's the whole dollar. Where do we spend our dollars? You know, do we have to spend the dollars on that, or spend dollars at somewhere else? You can have ten, twelve aircraft carriers and also house people. Yes, and that's so, my point. Yeah, because it seems like though there are a lot of people in our government mm -hmm. who say no, we have to spend all this money on the military. So sorry, starving veterans on the street. Yeah. You know, yeah. and that's not true. Correct. Yeah, it's not true. You and, and could adjust the budget yeah. and accomplish both. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You could tax a couple of billionaires and accomplish both. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's... Yep. So I mentioned one presidential speech. I'll mention another. Eisenhower's farewell address where he, he warns of the military-industrial complex and... And he wasn't, you know, when you read it, it's not like he's saying, you know, we can't let this happen. 
he's saying, you know, th this is a reality yeah. post-World War II. Because in any other major war that the United States had been in, when the war's over, everybody goes home. You know, you know, you're done. You know, you go back to being a citizen and, and delivering the mail or plowing the fields or, or whatever. Um, but post World War II, we needed to maintain a sizable military because of the, you know, the aforementioned communist menace. And so he said, you know, part of what's going to be a thing is the military-industrial complex. You know, the desire for more weapon systems on the part of the military and corporate America being more than willing. You know, and and so we've got to be very very you know um what's the word i'm looking at discriminating in in mm -hmm. our looking at what we're actually going to be spending money on for the military and eh, maybe sometimes that's happened but i think more often than not probably not they they find shiny things whether it's a, a new fighter or whatever yeah or a tax cut for corporations and then they decide oh but we can't possibly come up with the money which is a much smaller figure to significantly impact homelessness or, or food well, insecurity. Well, and there's another argument that they make, though, and it's not necessarily about the money. It's, it's about the, the, the morals, that, that if you're poor, it's because you don't have the right values. And no amount of money thrown at that is going to change that, that those people have to have the right values. And if they had the right values, they wouldn't be poor in the first place. But is that a real argument, or is that an excuse to take monies from, like, say... I an industrial military complex. I, sure, I think for a lot of them, they actually believe that. So for them, it's a real argument. Well, so this is what I want to say about that. I think they're, they're some of the abhorrent because of it, but do some, do some of the politicians that make that argument believe it? Yes. But I think there's probably plenty who don't. Um, but it, but it, what matters is, are there people out there willing to sort of hook, themselves onto that argument and say no that that's a good enough reason to not give money to the unworthy the undeserving who also happen to not look like me yep and also they're not around me i don't see them and and just the whole attitude that there's there's a finite pie yes and that the pie is not expandable yeah you know budgets and debts in gdp to the contrary no, it's exactly the arguments that are made. And it amazes me. I'm like, okay, so what you're saying is you're comfortable with people starving and homeless. Oh, it's not comfort. They, uh, and, and kids, this is not me saying this. This is me taking on the role. They deserve it because they don't have the right values. Which is fascinating because I will argue a lot of the people who present those values as critical also tend to put foremost their religious beliefs and a lot of religions i'm aware of tend to have a strong help thy neighbor yeah help the stranger kind of theme to it well help the poor and spe specifically yeah so people should read who's gonna inherit their earth i don't remember who was it again yeah yeah love who was it not my neighbor no love people who are as wealthy or wealthier than it's, yeah. i believe it was the rich I'm yeah, pretty sure was it rich. jeff bezos yeah yeah the so. Bezos will inherit the earth. Um, Bezos meek. It's like it's a short word. Cocktail break. So the first cocktail of the evening was a traditional margarita. Yeah, where we used proportions of four to three to two. And we used Herodero silver, um, Cointreau, and lime. And with the salt room, of course. And it, it's tasty. It's solid. It's not what a lot of people think of as margaritas because it's an actual margarita cocktail, not a, a restaurant tequila mix with Lindy with, thing. With sweet and sour or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So. Goopy syrup. So it's solid. Pleasant. Tasteful. You have to adjust if you're used to commercial margaritas, as it were. But. Yeah. Lovely. And, and one thing I do want to add that it is really worth it to use tequila. That's the 100% blue agave. Because if it doesn't say that, what I mean, and that's not being snooty, because if it doesn't say that, what that means is that tequila got shipped to the United States before it got bottled, and then the bottlers up here dumped a bunch of sugar into it, and then they bottled it, and I'm going to say you don't want that. Yeah, it, it's just not, and not a purist thing, it's just, yeah, metabolism-wise, it's not great. You know. And it's the kind of thing that gives me like an instant headache. It has nothing to do with like the alcohol or whatever. It's like I can take a swig of it and it's just like, 
boom, migraine. Yeah. I agree. So, but then the second one, Mezcal. The Mezcal was uh, Luminar, which I think is the name of a Starfleet vessel. I'm not sure, but Luminar Mezcal. And it, I mean, it's nice. It's very good. NCC Luminar? I can see that. Well, NCC number, USS Luminar. The Mezcal was uh, your suggested. Thank you, Jason. That's true. Yeah, that's a listener suggested. Uh, yeah, and and um, you know, kids out there, if if you have any suggestions for what um, you would like us to try that's not lethal, I mean, you know, we'd give it a shot. Um, but yeah, no, I I like, um, I mean, I like tequila, but I do like I do like mezcal. And I will say, I've only tried a mezcal once previously. Not a huge tequila fan. Tequila's fine, whatever. Not my preferred choice, but I tried mezcal, and I was really turned off by the. I think it was phrased as a kick in your face smokiness. Um, and this, at least in the, the cocktail, has not had that. It's actually been quite pleasant. I actually preferred the mezcal margarita to the tequila margarita. Yeah, other mezcal cocktails I've had are very reminiscent of Texas barbecue, where it's all about the smoke. Mm-hmm. So this has been a pleasant change. Well, and, and so the first, we used the same proportions as the margarita, four, you know, four mezcal to, to three Cointreau and two um, lime juice. But then um, for the second one, which I think we all agreed we sort of we sort of really like, um, it was like what, let's do Fibonacci proportions, five three two, because obviously everything should be Fibonacci proportions. You know, well, and it's like you know, like that's a thing. I mean, that's the goal, and maybe maybe there's some like for anybody who might be and, confused at home, five of what, three of what, two of what, mm, five of the mezcal and three of um, Cointreau and two of the lime juice. And um, as with any cocktail, whatever whatever your base liquor is, you know, make sure it's a good one. That's a good investment. That's like investing in like good socks or good pajamas. And also, I'll mention the Cointreau is one of those where you can get a cheap orange liqueur, but you don't want it. You don't want it. And also, you're not using a lot of orange liqueur as a general rule in any cocktail. So invest in a nice bottle of Cointreau. Yeah. And and it'll last you a long time. And coin like Cointreau, you know, on ice Cointreau that's been chilled makes just a nice like before dinner drink in its own right. Also, fun fact, a lot of people know that you should put vodka on ice if you want to do vodka shooters. It works for tequila as well. Yeah. Especially if you live in Texas and it's 162 outside. I yeah. I actually keep both vodka. When I have vodka, I don't usually have vodka, but I keep vodka, gin, and tequila in my freezer. I keep no alcohols in my freezer, partly because I'm lazy. Partly because my understanding is that you actually want to add a little bit of water to your liquors because it actually helps open up some of the flavors and releases some ketones and things, mm. which I saw once on a video and I'm sure is true of everything. As Ann said, this is Texas. I want something that's already frozen. Now it's time for what's that over there? Well, I'll go first. It's a book called Myth America, which is a collection of essays by historians that debunk common themes, particularly in political discourse and general national discourse. Um, often they are themes from the right, quote unquote, but not exclusively to the right. They they debunk themes. In oh general. yeah, there's themes to the left that are yeah. Um, and it's it's fascinating, it's eye-opening, and, and I'll be honest, as the person who did not really do much history after high school, you know, frankly, you, you finish with high school history and, and you kind of, oh, these are the themes of America, yay! No, it, it's fun to fun to break some of those down and go, oh, no, that's actually not true, or that's distorted or exaggerated or whatever, and so it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating thing. I will say, I believe it's the first chapter on American exceptionalism which they make a fair point, basically the, the idea of America being exceptional is kind of dumb because every nation is exceptional in some way. I get that, and I get a lot of the critiques that they have about what's put forward as America's exceptionalism are not true. But I'm still super impressed from the reading I've done about how... Um, the U.S. was basically the first and, frankly, one of the few still countries where the people chose their government in a popular election. 
the, the drafting of the Constitution, it putting forward for a popular vote, yes, not all the people, not even most of the people, but many of the people voted on it, had open discussions and debates, and voted on their form of government. It was an early version. It was a flawed version. But it was the first time people chose their government, which I think is pretty freaking exceptional. But that's, I have, no, I absolutely agree with that. That's what I'm reading. That's cool. I am rereading something um, that I first read in college in a in a um, medieval literature and translation course, Boethius' Consolation of Philosophy, uh, which is not that long, um, but it's. So Boethius was a was a real person. He was a Roman senator, born. Um, I'm feeling kind of Neanderthal-y over here with my popular recent books, but that's okay. You know, I did the the, the National Geographic Genographic Project, and apparently I'm like eight percent Neanderthal or something. I, I so it probably explains why I like raw meat. But um, but no, anyway, Boethius was a Roman senator, but lived during a time after the. You know, we sort of regard the Roman Empire in the West to have collapsed because the you know the 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 Goths took it over and put an emperor on the throne, that kind of thing. But it was also during a time that the Roman Senate was more or less a city council because they're really for the the Roman Empire in the West. There really is no empire left, and um, and even Rome, which at one point you know arguably it had upwards of a million people, historians disagree, was was way down in its population because of disease and illness and 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 getting sacked by vandals and then goths and you know people moved out to the country and that kind of thing but he was he was imprisoned um for well for unpopular political positions and he was sentenced to death and and so he he writes consolation of philosophy in uh when he's in prison and he's basically he writes it from the point of view of like somebody who's feeling sorry for himself like i've dedicated myself to the state and and everything and it's like in here they're executing me and like woe is me and then lady philosophy is 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 a character and says what is the matter with you and it and it's really about like the most important thing is sticking to your principles you know doing right regardless of consequence and it's also i'm going to say and this is in part from like college but it's good to read if you read the book of job read the book of Job and then read the constellation of philosophy. And it is on some level. Um, actually, I'm going to say for modern audiences, you could read this and be like, okay, this is kind of contrived, but it's, I, I'm going to say it is inspirational on some level. It, it is, you know, if, if there is, if, if Mac has canon events, you know, one, one of them is the first time, you know, I read constellation of philosophy. And, and so I decided, that it is for reasons that's a good time to reread it and it's it's good last call we're enjoying moscow mules mm-hmm. which are actually what are they because i i didn't make these um i do like them they're quite nice so the what makes a mule a mule is in fact the ginger beer because it gives it a kick. Get it? But, um, Get it? Get it? So it's not because it can't reproduce? Yeah. Okay. And so... Um, <laughs> ay, ay, ay. Um, so the actual original mule was a whiskey cocktail. Oh. And what makes it a Moscow mule is they started subbing in vodka. Hence mm. Moscow. And basically it's lime juice... Um, ginger beer, ginger beer, and vodka, and I do a shot of lime juice or half a lime if you have a full size lime, an entire key lime if you're using little limes, and um, a shot of vodka, and then, uh, depending on the ginger beer you buy, um, basically you fill the copper mug because. That's the other distinctive feature of a Moscow mule is that they are traditionally served in copper mugs. And, and we are, in fact, enjoying this with copper mugs. Yeah, and I, I will admit I was one of those girls in the bar that was like, saw the, them walking by on the tray and stopped the waitress and goes, what that? And it's a <clears throat> Moscow mule. And so that's how I first had them. And I did discuss with my friend whether we should steal them or not in our purses. And we didn't. And the next time we ordered Moscow mules, they came in regular glasses because everybody was stealing the copper mugs. 
but I now own my own legally, so yeah. I enjoy Moscow meals on a regular basis. Yeah, it's nice. It is nice. It's pleasant. Yeah. And I will say, um, for me, there was quite the hunt for the ideal ginger beer. Because a lot of ginger beers want to prove to you how much actual ginger they put oh in them. God. Yeah, no, I've yeah. into that. Yep. And they are completely overpowering. Yeah. Um, so I use one called Fever Tree. It's pretty widely available, at least here in Texas. And um, it's it's nice because it, you can taste the ginger, but it's not overpowering. Mm. So. See, I, I remember, having been born in Michigan, uh, Werner's Ginger Ale. And it was, and and I remember this. It was it was very it was very gingery, but not like they didn't go overboard with it, you know. Um, but it was also probably the most carbonated thing I'd ever had. Where you had to when you were going to take a drink, you know, a lot of times when you take a drink, you inhale a little bit. You you can't do that with burners. But now, and there's actually been some criticism of burners out there. It's more like a soda with high fructose corn syrup and, you know, they don't really necessarily follow the original formula, but it is like America's oldest soft drink or something dating from 1860, whatever. Tom, Tom, Tom. It used to be very good, but yeah, I've, I've always been a fan of ginger ale or ginger beer. Yeah, ginger beer is typically alcoholic and ginger ale typically is a soda. Yeah. Um, the Not Your Father's brand that right. had Not Your Father's root beer. That's... Yeah tasty stuff. Yeah, and also Not Your Father's Orange Soda, and mm-hmm. they had a, quite a few varieties, um, which were basically alcoholic versions of things you know and love, like root beer and orange soda. Mm-hmm. They had a Not Your Father's Ginger Ale, and I was making Moscow Mules with that for a while, and yeah. I loved yeah, them, because they were the perfect sweetness, and then the <clears throat> sour of the lime, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, I don't know if that brand has disappeared entirely or if they're just making the not your father's root beer now but i can't find the yeah, ginger ale I, I anymore find the root beer last time I went yeah there. so so in theory then you could make you could swap out the vodka with whiskey yes okay. I and i haven't i i wouldn't either i haven't tried it if you did it with whiskey what would you call like a paducah mule i mean well no it's just a mule it's just a mule okay. yeah because i could i could see like you know, bourbon or rye with ginger ale being pretty good. A lot you know, of the... I mean, I do like this, and I'm, I'm not usually a huge fan of vodka, but I do like this. Yeah, a lot of mm-hmm. the meal recipes now call for mint, but I think that's um, due to the popularity of the mojitos. Oh, and well, not really... That makes sense. Yeah. I'm not yeah. sure it was included in the original meal, mm-hmm. and I never include it because mint, bleh. Well, and I mean, I like mint, but I'm also going to say let, let a mojito be just... Mojito. Right, exactly. Right. You don't need to put mint julep in mint julep. Thank you. Yeah. You don't need that's, to have like 157 no. versions of an old fashioned. Just let an old. Well, that's the thing. Is like people, people really. Well, yeah, and and with the old fashioned, like I enjoy going to restaurants and seeing what they do with their old fashions because it's kind of funny. You can see the ones where like we're going to do an old fashioned, and what we're going to do is we're doing a little different bitters, mm-hmm. or we're doing a little different. Like, sweetener. like when they do black walnut, but they don't realize they should literally just put one drop if it's black walnut. Well, yeah. But I mean, like, sometimes they like they do a variant, and that's fine. Sometimes they go crazy. They, they pretend like it's an old-fashioned, and then it's not. No, it's not. So they made something else. Well, I, I've noticed a trend in cocktails where one cocktail becomes popular, and suddenly you have variations. Yeah. And they're really not variations. They're just other cocktails with the name, the name mm-hmm. attached to it. So... For a while, it was margaritas, and everything yeah. was a something eat yes. Frozen strawberry, cranberry. Yeah. Yeah. And then... Vodka margarita. It's like, you, that's you're not, not a margarita. margarita. And for a while, it was martinis, yep. and then everything had no, teeny at the end of it. Disaster. But they were just random cocktails yep. served in a martini glass, you know? Yep. We should do... We should do... I think that's happened. I think that happened with the mules. I don't know what the most current popular drink is that they're doing that yeah. to. I, I feel obligated to put the footnote here that yeah, we're calling it a Moscow mule because that's the common cultural name for the drink. Yes. Even though Moscow's... Vladimir Putin can go to hell. Yeah. 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 yeah, pretty much. So, 
Yeah. <laughs> just didn't so want the, the Russian to people are probably perfectly no, fine. No, they are, and I, I, I we're just I anti their government. I, I don't neutral want to about the Russian what people are having to deal with where he's like, okay, we're going to draft all of you, and we're going to make you fight in a war that you don't want to fight in. He's a piece of shit. I, I, I'm, I'm going to put no blame on the Russian people, but I'm not also going to assume they're all wonderful and kind. I'm just well, going to I say mean, I don't blame them. Yeah, and move on. But that's just like I mean, you know, there, there's also no been. evidence that anybody in Moscow drinks Moscow meals. <laughs> of course, no. Well, it's one of like it's it's it, we're going to call it a Moscow meal because there's vodka, and I've heard vodka is often done in Russia, and they have Moscow. I mean, that's yeah, you know. I remember in what was it the '90s or early 2000s that they said they were they were like paying soldiers in bottles of vodka, and the vodka that was made in Russia like they didn't it was just like a foil top because you know once it was open you know it wasn't going to get put back on or anything. Yeah, why would you bother? That was an article from like a long time ago, and if and if we have like references under this podcast, I'm sure we're never going to find that article. Yeah. Yeah. That Thanks. So, just, you know what? Cut that whole thing. You know what? <laughs> you want that in there? You find that reference. <laughs> So to, to wrap up and underline the actual theme of the evening, which was about taxes, Yeah, I think we covered that, yeah, your tax dollars generally are at work, mm-hmm. although sometimes not as well as they ought to be. Yeah. Whether that's through inefficiency or poor priorities. Yeah, or deliberate pork barrel. I didn't say why poor priorities, but yeah, yeah sometimes very deliberate poor priorities. Yeah. Um, Deliberate and, lobbies. Yep. I'm going to argue that the reason it's poor priorities is because of a lack of, of public engagement in the democratic process. That you allow yeah. politicians to get lobbied and make dumb decisions. And that if as voters you press your politicians for more accountability and to do what you want them to do, they will do it. Because they're beholden. I've actually had that conversation with um, a couple of, of younger folk. They're like, why should I vote? It doesn't matter. The politics. I'm like, yeah, do you realize that the reason they get all that money is because they spend it on campaigns to influence the vote? They spend a lot of money to influence the vote. And because also votes because are they're counting on you not to vote. Yeah, either, either for you to not vote or for you to vote the way they want you to. Because mm-hmm. your vote's important. And, and it's... Um, you know, if you, so if you look at, so checks and balances, something in the constitution, right? Those words aren't in there. Yeah. No, I know. But the, the ultimate check is, is going to be the people. And I know it's kind of popular among people say, oh, the founding fathers thought that people were stupid or they couldn't be trusted. And that's why we, you know, we're a Republican and blah, blah, blah. What is like, no, okay. if, if you really look at the, the checks and balances and like, let's say, because a lot of stuff in the Constitutional Convention was sort of troubleshooting. It's like, let's assume the worst person in the world is in these jobs, and how do we make sure to minimize the damage that they can cause? Um, and what is it automatically, not automatically, I'm sorry, what does it ultimately fall back on? The ultimate check is the people, and if the people are not paying attention, and if the, the people are not, at least most of them, hopefully a lot of them, sort of actively paying attention... Things are going to go to shit. And and that's... Too late. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, and it, I mean, it's happened before, and things get better. It's happened again, and like... People get distracted. I, I you know... Vote out the old white guys. Well, and, and yeah, I was, so I was going to say, like, what exactly has been the trend for the last 20 years or so? Yeah. Um, but the it's... old the, white guys. The ultimate... Some of them aren't guys, but yeah. And some of them are in this podcast. <laughs> but, well, okay, I'm, I'm going to underscore your thing by saying the first word of the Constitution is what? We. We. Yeah. Because it's all of us. So just to sum up. There are no pronouns in the Constitution, except for the first fucking word. <laughs> Taxes are working for us, except when they're not, and it's our fault. Yeah, no. Is that what yep. you're saying, Steve? That's yes. what I- and that's what I'm saying. That yes. the ultimate responsibility lies with us. Yes. If and, you don't like the government, don't change like, it. I mean, it's your there, job. There's, and if it's like, well, I can't get enough people to change it. There's, there's ways to persuade people. There's ways to be active. 
um, get engaged and they're they're you know and and I realize that the, this is from and I mean we have to acknowledge this is from like middle-aged white male per, you know privilege because there are people who may want to be active and like historically have been marginalized and ignored and that kind of thing but nevertheless you know historically you know many people who were not white males were able to get you know change affected and so it can happen but in any case it is something that we have to take responsibility for well that's a downer no it's a positive thing no it's a positive thing in fact i want to argue that that the the arc of the of america has been a bunch of privileged white guys coming up with a half good idea and everybody who wasn't a privileged white guy making it better along the way and that's been regular and continuous and ongoing it's not a straight occasionally there's a step back sometimes it's queer yeah 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 it, it's anybody and everybody and 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 we have gotten if nothing overall better over time by including more people and giving them more power yeah i would agree with that i would say campaign reform and protecting voter rights should be high on everybody's absolutely. list. Absolutely, yes. absolutely. Consent of the governed. Yes, and that's and that's like the, one of those things. Well, consent of the governed. Of the governed, and which yes. is all of us. And, all and, and it's like one of, of those us. things when when the like the older white male you know property owners would say like liberty and justice for all. It's like well, but we meant all was like people like us, and everybody no. else is like no, we're gonna make it mean all. all. Because you freaking said all. And it needs to be. Yes. Because consent of the governed. Absolutely. Are we part of the governed? Yes. So us too. Yeah. But not just. Yeah. So yeah. So tax dollars at work. Yeah. Subject to the consent of the governed and the oversight of the governed. If you're annoyed at how your tax dollars worked, have you been actively participating in your governance? Yeah. What if you have? You've voted time and again every time you could. Don't give up. Okay. Keep going. I'm uh, trying. Uh, two things there. One, don't give up. Two, one of the things about democracy is that you lose, and you still have to live with it. And keep fighting. Yeah. And if you believe in it, it's like, okay, I lost this one. What do I need to do? I'm going to go back at it. What do I need to do to convince these people? What can I do to... Which is a big ask. Yeah. But, I mean, but that's part of... That's part of what we have in a representative democracy. That's part of what has to be done. So everybody should go vote. Yes, register to vote, go vote. Contact your representatives, make your voices heard. You know, your vote's important, and there are many other ways to engage in addition to it as well. And you know, I'm going to say another thing. Consider running for office. There's state Excellent. representatives, state senator. State senator would be a little harder. City council. School board. School board. Yeah. Start small and grow. To be active. Be a seed. Yep. Attend they meetings. try to bury you, be a seed. Yep. It, it's shocking how few people actually attend and speak up at county, you know, commissioners meetings, city council meetings, school board meetings. Attend and make your voice heard. So let, let me, I'll, I'll finish my part with, the, with this. So my students have civic engagement project that they need to do. One of the options is to go attend a city council meeting. It could be San Antonio, Converse, Kirby, it doesn't matter. You know, they, they could go to you. And every year that I've done it, the kids that choose, and usually it's like a group of four or five of them that will go to a city council meeting, some, like one time it was Converse, Kirby. But they always come back and they're like, oh my God. And they're like, first of all, some of those, like, we, we were the only people in the audience except for these, like, two old people over here or whatever. And there, there was one where it, it, was, it, was a, it was a smaller town, and the meeting was, like, relatively boring until something exciting happened, which I won't go into. But everybody was kind of like, whoa, what the heck's going on? But then at the end of it, like, the, the, the city council and the mayor, they, they asked them, who are y'all? Like, why are y'all here? And so they said, well, it was a you know, project for, you know, our... Our, our, our government class and they gave them challenge coins that this, the city had for like and they all got one and like one of the city council members was like you know I've been here for like seven or eight years I ain't got one of those yet 
And, and so that just because it's like, you know, usually nobody shows up to those. And so they were like, you know, at the end of the meeting, all of them apparently were like wondering who the hell are these kids? And they're like, Oh yeah, no, we're doing this for a government class. And they just thought it was the coolest thing that the kids are here doing this. And, and my students were like, no, this was actually really interesting. And we learned a lot just from like a small town city council meeting, you know, and, and yes, it, it requires you to make time, but it's worth it because it's our government. Here's to our government. Cheers. 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 The Moscow mules. <laughs> They're Moscow mules. That's not important. The key Just mule. keep drinking. Moscow, Texas. <laughs> These are from Moscow, Texas, right? Sure, yeah. There's uh-huh. a copper mine there, I think. That and Ukrainian vodka. Here's to Ukraine. You have been listening to Civics on the Rocks, a once-a-month podcast featuring a real engineer going by the fake name of Steve, a real history teacher going by the fake name of Mac, and a fake producer going by the real name of Ann Schminsky. That's me. The guys drop a lot of references while they talk. We've tried to document them all in order of appearance on our website at civicsontherocks.podbean.com. We're also Civics on the Rocks on Facebook, Instagram, and Threads if you want to suggest a question of the day, or cocktail recipes, or different types of media you think we should check out. Whatever. Please drop by. We may also have an account on the platform formerly known as Twitter, but it's hard to tell these days. If you didn't like our podcast, well, I doubt you're still listening, but if you are, thanks for giving it a go. We know we're not everybody's glass of iced tea. If you did like our show, please follow, review, and share. And stay tuned for our next episode next month. Until then, cheers, y'all.